0: The Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio present Savor 2014, an American craft beer and food experience from Washington, D.C. This recording was from Friday, May 9th. Private Tasting Salon, Bottle Conditioning 101, featuring Jason Perkins from Allegash Brewing Company, Garrett Oliver from Brooklyn Brewing, Stephen Pawells from Boulevard Brewing Company, and Brian O'Reilly from Sly Fox
1: Brewing Company. Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to Savor. Uh, how many of you have been here before? Wow, all right. So you guys know what to expect. We, we think we know what to expect. The uh, talk tonight is on Bottle Conditioning 101. My name's Steve Broad. I'm the brewmaster for Free State Brewing in Lawrence, Kansas, and I'll be your sort of host and introducer for this evening's salon. Saber is now in its seventh year and well-established as one of America's Premier beer and food events, and it's brought to you by the Brewers Association, the national nonprofit trade association representing small and independent craft brewers. I serve on the board of directors for the Brewers Association and also serve as the chair of the events committee, which assists in the production of Savor and of the Great American Beer Festival, another of America's premier craft beer events held in Denver, Colorado, in early October. The Brewers Association also publishes craftbeer.com, which is your best source of information about these events and about the wider world of American craft beer. Uh, Thanks to our room sponsor, Spiegelau, the class of glass for the glassware that we're Drinking out of tonight, as you get your beers, um, and as we switch from beer to beer, there's water on the table, so to invite you to rinse out your glass and uh, pour pour off into the buckets there, so you have a fresh glass for each fresh beer. Um, and please wait to enjoy the beers being served until each int- each speaker introduces them. Uh, questions we'll try to answer at the end, and I will ask that if you if you can let me get around to you with a microphone. Uh, Tonight's salons are being recorded on craft beer radio, giving you the chance to hear it all over again, and we would like to have your comments and questions as well as the answers from our speakers. Uh, Many, if not most, of the beers in this country are considered to be finished before they are begrudgingly consigned to a bottle by their creator brewers. Some, however, have yet to reach full maturity when they are placed with a bit of yeast, perhaps, and a fresh charge of wort or sugar into the final package. Once packaged, they'll continue to develop through a process called bottle conditioning. The conditions under which these beers will develop into their final state of maturation and the specific methods used vary from brewery to brewery. Each of our speakers this evening will provide insights into the methods they use and the results they expect to achieve. Please join me in welcoming our speakers tonight, Brian O'Reilly with Sly Fox Brewing in Pottstown, Pennsylvania, Jason Perkins with Allagash Brewing in Portland, Maine, my neighbor Stephen Powell's down the road with Boulevard Brewing in Kansas City, Missouri, and Garrett Oliver with Brooklyn Brewing in Brooklyn, New York. Ladies and gentlemen.
2: All right, welcome to Bottle Conditioning 101. So what better way to talk about bottle-conditioned beer and talk about the flavor, the nuances, the influence of bottle conditioning than to sit around with some experts here and drink beer? So I hope you guys appreciate that, that fact. I don't know if they have beer in the other room, but it didn't look like it. So they, well you chose wisely. Um, so certainly bottle conditioning is uh, an art and a science, and uh, it is definitely different in our brewery when we're preparing beer. Uh, For bottle conditioning, it doesn't taste exactly like it will taste later. So unlike some of the carbonated and filtered products that we produce. So um, there's a bunch of nuances, uh, frequently higher carbonation, some different uh, effects of yeast and refermentation in the bottle. And uh, these subtle nuances, and some of them not so subtle, can produce an incredibly brilliant and wonderful beer. So we're just going to go through one by one, and I guess uh, aside questions, we'll certainly answer at the end, but if you guys have a question in the middle, or something's not clear, you know, there's no rules here, so just speak right up. But uh, this first beer we're, we're enjoying uh, is made uh, at Boulevard Brewery, and I'm going to introduce Stephen to talk about it, tell us a little bit about it, maybe talk about the process of bottle conditioning, and uh, we'll go from there.
3: Thank you, Brian. Is this on? Yeah, you're on. Yeah, on. Okay. I am quiet. Thanks, Steve. Um, okay, well, uh, th- th- thank you very much for all for coming out and uh, thanks for inviting inviting us down here. So um, I saw the list of beers coming through that the other guys were bringing out, and I was like, okay, somebody's got to keep it simple here. So I thought I'll I'll just bring a simple beer. Um, so the beer that I brought is Long Strange Triple. It's uh, American take on a Belgian classic, more or less. So it's a, it's a Belgian triple. Um, does anyone know the story about triples and doubles and stuff? I mean, some of you probably do. But in the uh, Middle Ages, to keep track of beer, or how they made beer is they didn't really have the system like we have now with a lauter where you sparge and then, you know, kind of get all the extract out. What they did is they would kind of scoop the wort out and then they had the first wort going in the kettle, which was the strongest one, and that went that boiled separately and then fermented separately and that became the strongest beer. So they put three crosses on it and then afterwards they would dilute the, the louder or the mash at that time and dilute it and scoop again the wart out and then they, that would uh, boil and ferment separately and then they put two crosses on it and then eventually they had the single at the end with one cross. So that's what is the uh, triple, double and triple concept. So the triple was the strongest one that they would keep and drink themselves. And then the double would be for people with a little bit of, uh, you know, standing. And then the single would be for the plebs, the people that, you know, were looking for shelter in the monastery so they could have some beer too. I kind of made the last thing up, but it kind of sounded good, I thought. Um, But that's kind of the story behind triple and and double and single. So um, the reason why we bottle condition this beer is because um, triples tend to be, because they're really high, uh, pretty high in alcohol. In our case, it's about nine and a half. Um, So they're pretty high in alcohol. So... Uh, they tend to be a little sweet uh, because they're really not really hop-forward beers. They're really yeast-forward beers, in my opinion. Uh, and to cut the sweetness, um, I, we need a lot of carbonation. And that's why we bottle condition this beer. So by the time we put this beer in the bottle, it's almost flat. It's basically one volume or two grams of CO2. And then we add quite a bit of sugar, and we, we also add yeast. We take all the yeast out, and then we add yeast again to, to the, uh, the tank before we bottle it. And then we like to get this beer up to about 8 grams, which is about 4 volumes of CO2, so um, quite a bit higher than what you normally would get in a regular beer. What's a regular beer? About two, two and a half or so volumes, yeah. So we, we go almost to double the amount. And just to get, create that really high CO2 level to kind of scrub the sweetness out of your mouth when you're done drinking the beer, that's kind of the whole idea behind it. So um, we add... We basically, we ferment the beer out, we add a lot of sugar in the brew house too to make it dry, and even though at the end it still has a little sweetness and then uh, we add sugar again, and we add the yeast in the bottling tank, and then we bottle it. Um, we have two packages, this is the one with the 750s, with the, with the champagne cork, and then we have one that comes in a 12-ounce bottle too, um, we package this one flat because our bottle line just can't handle carbonation. Um, but with the 12 ounce, we go in with more carbonation on the beer. So there's a little bit less bottle conditioning that we do. Um, you taste the difference a little bit. This one might have just a little bit more fruity esters than the one that has a, a shorter carbon, a carbonation. Um, but really, other than that, the beers are pretty much the same. Is anybody gonna explain where bottle conditioning come from? Are you gonna do that, Don't Dom Perignon? Yeah. I think I think Garrett can explain it a lot better than me, so I'm not going to go there. Um, we we bottle condition uh, almost all our beer at Boulevard, so the smokestack beers are kind of you know very Belgian influenced, and it kind of comes natural that you bottle condition those. Um, but we've done that for most of our beers, except our lagers. And the reason why we do that is we, we believe that it really extends the shelf life of the beer. So by the time the beer is um, is is bottle conditioned and it's released to the public to you know, to say for sales. We know that we, add a, we can add a couple of months of, that the beer is not oxidized or doesn't taste oxidized. Um, and we think that's really important. It's a huge investment for the brewery. Uh, we have a warehouse that's about 60,000 square feet that's full with beer and it's bottle conditioning. So we, we keep the beer for, uh, depending on what beer it is, between 12 days and then for these stronger beers, up to three, three weeks before we release them. Um, at that time that the beer is bottle conditioned, uh, personally, I don't like the beers that are just done by all the conditioning. They are, they have a lot of off flavors. They have some aldehydes. There's some, there might be some VDKS left, some diastole left. Um, and I like the beers, especially the stronger beers. I like them between three and nine months. I think that's, at, at that age, these beers are kind of, all the flavors kind of come together. And it's like a really nice marriage of all the different flavors. The off flavors are gone and it's really, you know, the true characteristics of the beer come out. So, um... And I think on these beers, we basically give it, a, especially on this beer, we only give it nine months on, on shelf life. So by the time it gets to the store and by the time you pick it up, it should have already a couple of months on and all the flavors should be blended nicely. That's about all I can say about bottle conditioning for now. I know Garrett's going to have a long talk. Right, Garrett? I don't have to. <laughs> all
2: right. Thanks, Steven. Um, oh, Yes.
3: A good question. Um, we boil a condition at about 75 Fahrenheit right now. We actually over the years we have increased it. Uh, it's a, basically it's a you know it's a biochemical reaction, and if you go up one degree, you know that the speed goes up times two. So uh, the higher you go, but it also has a, uh, a negative effect because you kind of age the the beer also. So. You have to look at what temperature you really you want to want it. Some, some breweries in the U.S. will go pretty low in temperature. In Belgium, they're all at about 25 Celsius. Um, so we're pretty close. We're about 23 Celsius. So we're clo- really close to that.
2: So you guys have a lot of heaters for that in the winter then, yeah. right? Yep. Yes. Yeah. So. And
3: big
2: yeah, move the air around. Can we, uh, we'll, maybe we'll start pouring the next beer, or we might have to drink up. But So certainly, uh, interesting enough, when Stephen said that three to nine months is a sweet spot for many of our beers as well, it seems uh, before that they're kind of young tasting, and I think after that some of the beers are still very interesting, but don't have that fresh quality to them, so... I'll start talking about this next beer. It was brewed at Sly Fox. It's called Icor. And uh, the ancient Greeks didn't believe that the gods had blood in their veins. They thought they had this other stuff called Icor. And uh, they they believed it was blue stuff. And I kind of wonder if uh, the royalty that got to sit under the fan all day and didn't have to work in the fields. And, you know, we have Greek owners at the brewery and, the one thing, one of the many things they can do is tan, and uh, they get really dark when they tan, but I like to think that maybe the royalty spent a lot of time out of the sun and you could still see the blue vein in their arm, and I wonder if that's where that blue stuff came from. So um, the blood of the gods here. So it's a dark Belgian strong beer, and like Stephen was talking about, single, double, triple um, this beer was maybe a triple to some breweries, um, but triples became a little more popular when West Mall decided to make theirs golden in color. So now the the uh, many times people think about triple, it's more the golden beer. But definitely a similar strength, but dark. Um, we use... Uh, very little specialty malt in this beer, a little bit of uh, dark, uh, neutral roast malt to give us, give us some color. We also use a dark candy syrup to give color, and uh, I'm not a big fan of light candy syrup. It doesn't seem that different than dextrose, but uh, the dark syrup is not um, a mix of impurities like molasses or brown sugar that we would purchase. Um, it's a caramelized sugar, so it has a different flavor uh, to us. And uh, so we give it that sugar, not only for flavor, but also to lighten the body of such a strong beer so it's not cloying. And uh, we use a, a Trappist-style yeast strain that produces some of those really fruity and estuary characters. Um, like Stephen, this beer is n-fermented, And then uh, we filter the beer, get rid of all that primary yeast, And uh, we bring it to the bright beer tank, and then we'll take the CO2 of it. And we're usually a little higher than a volume. We're usually 1.6 to to 2 volumes. Um, So about the volume of CO2 in a cask-conditioned beer. So to some people, it would be relatively flat. And just if you don't speak uh, brewer talk, draft beer is usually about 2.5 volumes. And we'll add uh, yeast and sugar. And our goal is to get uh, well above three and and about to four. So um, basically, the beer will be cold. We'll add yeast and sugar. And it will then uh, go through our bottle line. And we don't uh, have warm warehouses, except in the summer. Then we have warm warehouses. So depending on when we bottle it, the conditioning can take a little longer. But it's usually carbonated. In two weeks, but it tastes really young. And uh, sometimes it'll leave the brewery uh, at three weeks, but very frequently four. Um, and I also think that this beer starts to taste uh, appropriate after a few months in the bottle. Um, and uh, I think our lighter beers, I think, really peak in, in le- about a year or less. Uh, this beer, I think, some of the... Uh, when the beer starts to oxidize or get a little bit, you know, like that, the dark malts kind of really protect it and it gets a nice warm uh, character to it. So, um, one thing that's interesting as well is when the, this primary fermentation is pretty vigorous, and sometimes we'll note uh, some uh, off flavors or some uh, esters that are not entirely appropriate. And we've often found that when we bottle condition the beer, they'll be reabsorbed, and they're, and they're gone a, f- a few weeks later. So uh, not only does the bottle conditioning give us a very spritzy CO2 that makes the beer not cloying, um, but it also uh, kind of rounds out the flavors of the beer as well. So... Um mm-hmm. Sorry. Explain what? Yes. So. <laughs> I think it's just,
4: uh... Oh, it's it's kind of an obscure concept. Volumes. I mean, and uh, which is the reason why in Europe they use grams. You know, grams per liter because uh, it's <laughs> generally more more directly understandable, but basically it's kind of exactly what it sounds like if you took co2 say this you got this bottle and it's full of liquid if you took co2 at its atmospheric pressure which is important you would have two and a half bottles worth of co2 imagine this is now co2 in that in that bottle do you know what i mean like the the actual co2 if it were you know if it were at atmospheric pressure you know whatever it is 14.7 you know, pounds per square inch, would actually occupy this much space. It would be two and a half times the size of the inside of the bottle. So you actually can visualize from it um, how much gas is, is in the liquid. Uh, from a technical point of view, it's not actually a terribly useful um, way to think of things because, you know, as most things uh, are that we do in the United States when it comes to numbers and and things like that, uh, you know, they're, they're comforting in a, in, a, in, a, in a direct way, but they don't really make so much sense on the scientific side. I mean, uh, if you, but if you're a very visual person, it's actually kind of cool to know. It's like, you know, here's one bottle and it's full, and then there's two and a half bottles, or in this case, four bottles. You can imagine another four bottles sitting next to it. That would be the CO2 that are in that bottle. So that's what it means.
2: Also, if you drink half the bottle... You'd have half the volume of the original volume.
4: Exactly. (laughs) Then your head would explode.
2: So, for us at the brewery, um, let's see, duds. We have had some challenges with bottle conditioning, and we have had to recall some beer. It was a long time ago. Um, we, In some ways, um, quality control is easier for us because we have time with the beer. So, once it's bottled, it stays in the brewery, and we have time to check all, all those facets before it gets released. And because, in our situation, unlike Stevens, they're niche, their niche products. Our uh, cans are not bottle conditioned, so oftentimes it's a struggle to hold on onto them long enough to get all that work done. So, um, was, did that answer? For, yeah. This is about ten, about ten percent. So, um, I guess not to. Uh, We, we, use, we use sugar, and I actually, I, I, when I mentioned that we filter out the primary uh, yeast, we use a different yeast for bottle conditioning, and for us, uh, it's because we have that yeast healthy and working in other fermentations all the time, and it seems to be very trustworthy. Um, uh, it's not because we want to keep that yeast from people, but uh, we, we, I don't think we've ever used wort. Have any of you guys normal practice of using wort um it it it, yeah it would be um good for maybe a german hefeweizen it certainly would be very traditional but uh there's no need um for that extra work or extra caution and extra you know issues um these beers usually have sugar as part of their their grist anyways or their whole makeup so We use more of an American ale strain that works well for us, but I think, I mean, I guess you guys could decide to explain that or say what, do you you guys all use the same yeast, different yeast? Is there any?
5: Yeah, we we use a, there's one core strain we use for most of our beers, um, but there are some beers we actually use residual primary fermentation yeast as well. Kind of depends on the beer and the, you know, the alcohol makeup and how, what kind of state the yeast is in, what kind of flavors we want in the final beer. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about the beer we have here later where we, um, uh, we use residual yeast that's been in there for over a year, but I'll explain that later. So, but typically, 90% of our bottle conditioning is one, one strain. And we're looking for a strain that's alcohol-tolerant, um, powdery, so it drops out of the beer nicely and not, doesn't get clumpy. Some yeast can get clumpy in the bottle. Um, and then we're out. you know, we factor flavor in as well. I mean, that you can, it's minor, it's a small part of it, but you can get some, some uh, aromatic compounds from re-fermentation depending on the
3: yeast strain you choose. Yeah, we, we use two different bottle conditioning yeast, actually we use dry yeast for bottle conditioning. It's just very, very easy, we're, we're all technologists and we want to try to make things as, as easy as possible. So we just regrow the dry yeast and then add it to the bottle, actually we do that in line to the filler. And we have two different ones, one that we use for uh, our main brands and then one which is a champagne yeast that we use for these big beers. Um, and, um, and the same here, um, flavors, so it, it shouldn't be making, especially for the, for the main brands, it shouldn't be making any, for vanilla glycol or any of the phenols, it should be, you know, for big beers then it should be alcohol tolerant, it should be good glass adherence, it it sticks to the bottle of the bottle, it shouldn't make flakes and stuff like that. I mean, those are all things that we look at when we select these yeast. I think it's an interesting point to talk about dextrose versus spice like they do in Germany. If you go to a Hefeweizen brewery, I think it's really amazing there. They ferment in three days, then the beer is ready and goes into the bottle. They have a centrifuge, they bypass some yeast, then they have a wort tank with Wort that they brewed a couple of days ago and then they cool it down to four degrees and they put that also with the, with the beer into the bottle. I mean, the process is, to me, is so, you know, very streamlined uh, compared to what we do because we're, we ferment and then we cool it down. We take the yeast out, put new yeast in, and I mean, for these, these traditional hefeweizens breweries, I think it's, I mean, they have, the, they have it down to the science, which is, to me is fairly amazing. They, put, they brew beer and three days later it's in a bottle. And then it goes out, and two weeks later, it's out in the market already. It's pretty amazing.
2: So maybe we'll we'll take that question, but maybe we can start pouring uh, the next beer. Yeah, makes me nervous with. <laughs> so, yep. How long the How long has the last beer been in the bottle? You know, I'd have to look at a date code to tell you, hold on. It's been a little over six months in the bottle. So. I'm going to hand the microphone over to Garrett to talk about this beer.
4: All right, so I wanted to, uh, you know, given that I saw also the other beers that were being served, I wanted to, you know, serve something that was, uh, you know, in the middle. You know, if you like, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about re-fermentation, but also, you know, other things that go on in secondary fermentation. This beer is old, quite old. It's from 2008. Um... Uh, it's uh, part of uh, a range of beers that we call Ghost Bottles. They're things that we don't sell. Though recently, uh, we did do a commercial version of this, uh, which is called Wild Streak. Um, both these beers are based on our bottle-conditioned uh, uh, Local One, which we first brought out uh, in 2007. So we've been bottle-conditioning beer uh, really only th- since 2007. Um, all of our bottle-conditioned beers are bottled flat. Uh, one thing with this beer in particular that you'll notice is that uh, there's not much in the way of foam formation, and that's because, uh, partially because the beer is, uh, is old. Um, it's also barrel-aged, and as you can smell and taste, obviously, it also is, uh, uh, has Brett, you know, involved. So I'll kind of take you a little bit you know, through that, but as Brian asked, I'll give you a quick overview here you know, of, of re-fermentation in the bottle and kind of where it comes from and you know, what brewers are looking to do with it. Uh, well, one thing I want you to keep in mind, and I think uh, we're used to calling this a champagne bottle, I just want to bring to everyone's attention that this is a beer bottle. And it was always a beer bottle, and champagne is in a beer bottle. If you look if you even at Budweiser ads from around the turn of the century, they all have bottles look exactly like this. You know, this was always a beer bottle. And if you know what a wine bottle looks like, it doesn't look like this. Um, our bottles look like that. Um, because the idea of bottle refermentation was to take a flat beverage, which is wine, and make it sparkling like beer. And they use exactly the same technique in order to do it. Um, now, you know, in champagne fermentation, they kind of learned that when the fermentation would stop because of cold weather, uh, you had it out in a barn that wasn't being heated, whatever, uh, and it would stop. And then it would start again, stop and start. What would eventually happen is, uh, is you know, champagne bottles were ex- would explode. And uh, uh, really, well into the late 1800s, half of champagne produced was lost to bottle explosions. Now, if you know, if you actually, you can go look this up on Google. It's interesting to see there were suits of armor that people wore in order to do bottle conditioning because many, many, <laughs> many, many people were killed. Many people were killed. You know, I mean, because you think about it, you got a bottle under very high pressure, the thing explodes. Well, it's glass, you know. So um, there, there was a pretty, pretty, pretty heavy armor in order to do it. Over time, though, people learned to control and understand this, and so... Um, in modern bottle conditioning, you know, what the brewer wants is, uh, uh, the ability to achieve a higher level of carbonation, possibly the ability to to scrub up relatively small amounts of, of, oxygen that may be in the bottle. It's not as big an effect as people tend to think that it is. They may want secondary flavors that are, you know, that are being given by the secondary yeast strains. Um, bottle conditioning is shown to be foam positive. Uh, this beer does not particularly show it, but it shows in our other beers uh, that are not aged. Um, and so, you know, uh, all of these things are, are part of what makes uh, uh, bottle conditioning special. Over time, if you're going to age beer, you also get uh, a characteristic which is not usually considered favorable in fresh beer, which is uh, uh, an autolysis character. And one thing that's kind of interesting, and that's the flavor, essentially, of dead yeast, which is a... Uh, you know, in, in wine, it's is described as being toasty and hazelnuts. Uh, sometimes it's referred to as being meaty. But it's interesting that if you look at champagne, they require that you age champagne on the bo- you know, with yeast in the bottle for not less than three years. The autolysis flavor is part of the flavor of champagne and is, uh, is prized. Uh, and so, you know, exactly the same character that we often are trying to get rid of, they are trying to get. Um, In this case, this is a beer where we're not really looking to get rid of that. We want the the yeast to stay alive for quite a while, um, but eventually we know that uh, over time it's going to die off, and you do have some of those flavors going on here too. So a second-use bourbon barrel, uh, this is a Belgian strong strong golden, if you like, went into the barrel flat, uh, second-use bourbon barrel, nine months in the barrel, and then refermentation in the bottle with champagne yeast and Britannomyces. Um, so, went in 2009, uh, uh, 2008 rather. You know, out of out of uh, out of the warm rooms in 2009, and you have it in front of you now. It has no residual sugar at all. Um, you know, uh, it is about 10.2%. Uh, so that's kind of interesting when you taste it. It's got. Um, it would appear to your palate to have some uh, some sweetness, um, but that sweetness is uh, is really what I call false sweetness. It's an impression you know, given to you by alcohol and by esters that are created. And they say sweet to your brain, uh, but there's no actual sweetness there. And you can kind of see when you think of your, you know, perceive your tongue after the beer goes down and you'll, you know, you're not going to find any sugar there. So I think the, uh, uh, you get, what you're getting from the barrel is obviously the coconut and vanilla-like characters. Uh, The Brett kind of uh, speaks for itself, Um, but uh, in bottle conditioning, you can bring in, and this is why I wanted to serve this beer, secondary effects, uh, so we can get the effects of the bottle conditioning, but we can also, as we did here, uh, add a small amount, a relatively small amount to Britannomyces uh, at bottling, and have that play out, you know, over the further life of the beer. Now, when we first learned to do bottle conditioning, we learned it uh, uh, actually... From a Belgian brewer who spent a few days with us, helping us get over you know some pitfalls that we would have run into. Uh, we make several beers that are bottle conditioned all the time. Local one, local two, and Sirachi Ace are available uh, uh, you know all the time. We have 2 refermentation rooms. They run at 77 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, the average time in the room is uh, is two weeks, and we look to you know the the, the room uh, has good recirculation. Uh, Our refermentation crates are open on all sides to kind of guarantee that we have the same temperature throughout the room and and, uh, very strong fans. uh, Also to make sure that we have the same temperature throughout the room. Um, All these beers are filtered of their original yeast, just like Brian's. Uh, We then re-dose the exact amount of yeast that we want. Uh, We do use dried yeasts of various sorts. Um, except for the brett in this case, was not a dried yeast. It was actually a yeast that was lent to us by New Belgium. Um, and so, uh, they're, they're, it's interesting. You know, how many people in the room are home brewers? Okay, about less than a quarter of the hands go up. So I'm not going to get too far into it. But there's a but there's a uh, but there's a big uh, a big difference between uh, bottle conditioning in a brewery and bottle conditioning at home. Uh, you know, in that, yes, we do want to remove the yeast, which not only allows us to have the, exactly the refermentation that we want, but also to precisely control how much yeast the consumer is going to have in the bottle at the time, which helps us control the shelf life you know, and the overall life of this beer, which is what we want to do. Um, so, you know, you won't be seeing this much yeast in some bottles, and that much yeast in other bottles, uh, uh, et cetera. Um, you know, shelf life you know, is, uh, is going to be important to us as if you're buying beer or I expect it's important to you. Uh, you want younger beer to taste like younger beer and older beer to taste like older beer and not really for those things to be, uh, to be mixed up. Um, you know, we're, we're also looking to get a fairly rapid uh, refermentation, but uh, more importantly, a predictable one. And that's another thing that doesn't matter so much at home. If, if, if our refermentation were to take, say, suddenly 18 days, instead of 14 days, the entire brewery would back up. You know, uh, we can only keep about 5,000 cases under a fermentation at any given time. You know, our refermentation rooms are not as big as his. Um, and so uh, we're counting on that refermentation really being done during that time. We then run it through a series of tests. Uh, if it passes, then it goes into cold conditioning for a further three to four weeks. Uh, this renders the yeast dormant, you know, which is also important. keeps the yeast uh, uh, basically in hibernation where it can stay alive. Uh, our beers are bottled warm, uh, which for us is pretty important. Um, it's one of the things that uh, the Belgians taught us was that, uh, that you're, you were taking a big risk uh, if you put the beer in the bottle cold with your yeast and then go to warm the bottles up in the warm room and expect the yeast to wake up and, and do your bidding. You know, it might. It might even do so 90% of the time, but there might be 10% of the time that it doesn't. You know, it says, you put me in the cold, get lost. And, uh, and this happens to a lot of people. Uh, and, uh, again, in a brewery, you can't afford that. You know, you, you, you really don't want to, as Stephen was saying, you don't want to have these problems. What you really want to have it come down to is a... Uh, is a process which gives you the things that you want, doesn't give you the things you don't want, and is relatively streamlined. And you know, I kind of feel like uh, uh, you know, processing a couple of batches uh, of this a week for several years, we have it, uh, we have it down pretty well. I am particularly remember, I particularly remember a, a time that we had I uh, uh, I don't know, a Q and A with some people, and uh, they tasted a range of our beers. Local one, uh, uh, they were tasting at the time. And the guy had a question. He said, well, yeah, I have a problem. I have a bone to pick. He said, local one is too consistent. You guys should let your hair down a little bit and let it, and let it out, let it go, like, do this and that. I'm like, whoa, whoa, what do you mean too consistent? Like, you know, we put this beer in the bottle flat. Uh, you know, actually, up until recently, we didn't ha- even have a, gra- you know, a, a, a counterpressure filler for these beers. You know, we only ran the beer on a gravity filler. Uh, which I did on purpose to make sure that we would never lose our nerve and that we would actually learn to do this thing correctly. You know, and if you, uh, you know, if you burn the boats, there's only one, way, you know, only one way forward. And so that's the way we went. And, uh, yeah, too consistent. I was like, well, you know, we're pretty proud of that consistency. I mean, people pay, you know, they go out, they pay money for this bottle of beer, and they liked it last time, and they should still like it the next time. You know, it's not supposed to be a crapshoot. Um, And so, you know, I think what Steven was saying is really important. You know, if you're in a professional brewery, you're trying to sort of create something that, you know, you have an idea in your head of exactly what it is, well, you you need to know how to do that. And, uh, you know, for for these beers, uh, I think we have learned it over time. What's fun, though, for a beer like this is that we can also uh, put some serendipity into the project, um, by using different other elements together with the, bar, uh, the bottle conditioning. And in this case, you know, that is the brett portion. And over time, we're going to be playing with the amount of brett that goes into refermentation, uh, uh, you know, to give you uh, different effects over time. And it's interesting that sometimes with brett, the, uh, the less you use, the more character you get. Um, and, uh, you know, that's true of some yeast strains anyway, but it's particularly true of brett and i'll I'll wind up by uh, pointing out you know as we uh, you know and I have a feeling that, uh, that that Jason will also be talking about Brett, um, that Britannomyces, which we tend to think of as Belgian, the word Britannomyces means the British yeast that's what it means. Britanno is Britain um, so you know I think that uh, if we think about bottle conditioned beer, it's important to think about the fact that uh, uh, that uh, all carbonated beer, highly carbonated beer that wasn't coming out, that was in bottles, used to be bottle conditioned, you know, up until relatively recently in history, uh, in beer history. And also, you know, the fact that uh, uh, that, that Brett character, which uh, many of us uh, love uh, and think of as Belgian, was everywhere. Um, Emile Hansen did his work on separating out single strain, uh, single strains of yeast in 1883. And most breweries didn't get it until way, way later than that. Um, And so mixed strain fermentations uh, uh, used to be uh, absolutely the norm, even less than 100 years ago.
3: So, Garrett, are you telling me that French fries are not Belgian also? Peruvian. Of
2: course.
4: (laughs) Yes. Question.
2: So the question was that many of us had mentioned we filter the beer. And, you know, how do we do that? There's sometimes things in a brewery, a centrifuge that spins the beer and gets out solids, a little different than filtration, where beer goes through um, paper or diatomaceous earth that will then basically filter out the yeast or protein. So at, at Sly Fox, we, we use diatomaceous earth to filter the beer. So we let...
5: Uh, yeah, we we use a centrifuge. Um, centrifuges do a great job of removing yeast. They don't necessarily remove all the protein material, uh, polyphenols that add to haze. Uh, that's not a big concern for us. So uh, we just use centrifuge only. So I guess it's my turn anyway. So I'll keep this. Um, well, first of all, I should say that um, I don't know if everybody in the room knows, but Steven's a Belgian native, and so. There may be a little bit of a rumble later when Garrett's trying to say that Britannomyces is not Belgian, so it could get ugly, so <laughs> I may have to separate them.
4: <laughs> um, well, he could ask me if I noticed the brusselensis at the end of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so these guys have done a great
5: job kind of going through the process of uh, bottle conditioning. Um, and I'll, and I'll do my best to add to it. We, we at Allagash bottle condition uh, all of our beers and have since around 2000. Um, so we, we bottle both in uh, 750 mil bottles, which you don't see here. We bottle in these 375 mil cork bottles. And we also bottle in 12 ounce. And so all that stuff's bottle condition. And we actually uh, also keg condition a good chunk of our beers as well. Um, so we're a firm believer in it. Um, you know, it's kind of it's tied to the tradition that we follow. All the beers that we make are Belgian style. Um, and we also feel, for the reasons that have already been brought up, that it, it adds a lot to the beer and, and gives us kind of another tool to play with, adds to shelf life, creates this great uh, carbonation to the beer, and so on. But as Stephen alluded to, there's a lot of expense to it. Uh, we also have a big, a big uh, warm room. Uh, a lot of time is added to it. Of course, the suits of armor that all of our cellar workers have to wear to stay safe. That's expensive as well. Um, but uh, we, we've, we've, we've talked a little bit about uh, bottling flat versus not bottling flat, and, and we, um, we, we kind of do a mix of both. So we, we bought all of our 750 mil bottles are bottled, one would say, flat. So prim- only what's left from primary fermentation. So there's a little bit of carbonation there, but very, very low. Um, same goes for the 375 mil bottles that you're trying here. We do add some carbonation to some beers. Uh, m- some of you, maybe all of you are familiar that our flagship is Allagash White. It's a you know, Belgian-style wit beer. It's a very delicate beer, um, a beer that's best served fresh. And we found over time that... Um, the, 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 if we can remove as much oxygen as possible from the package, it helps its aging potential. So we kind of made a decision a bunch of years ago where we add a little bit of carbonation to the beer so that we can uh, jet the beer or fob the beer, as you may have seen at breweries. And that's the, uh, where you're adding a, a very high-pressure um, stream of water that induces foam in the beer, and you can cap on top of foam, and that drives the oxygen out of the headspace of the beer. And so we choose to do that with some beers. Alagash White, like I said, we occasionally do some hoppy beers uh, with a lot of dry hop character. And we've also found in those cases that um, reducing that oxygen as much as possible it helps you know, retain those really delicate flavors. So it's kind of a balancing act. You know? There's no doubt that full bottle refermentation has a lot of benefits um, in terms of flavor profile and uh, shelf life. And, but you know, sometimes we make a conscious decision to... to uh, Add some carbonation and and you know create create that uh, driving off of oxygen. So um, we also use a n- variety of yeasts. Uh, like I said earlier, we have one strain that we rely on a lot for the majority of our seven hundred and fifty milliliter bottles. So that would be um, you know our double, our triple, our black. Uh, the majority of our kind of seasonal items, um, and we choose that for very specific reasons. Um, but for example, our Allagash White, we choose to use uh, residual primary fermentation yeast. So it's the it's the yeast that we use to ferment a beer in the in the fermenters. We separate uh, a good chunk of that yeast to have a very specific cell count in the bottle at packaging, uh, and then we use that for re-fermentation. So um, you know, we often homebrewers often ask, can we can we prop up the yeast that's in the bottom of, of, of your bottle and and uh, brew with it? And for the most part, white's the only one you could actually do and get the primary yeast in. So, um, so uh, we also do some Britannomyces bottle fermentation sometimes, uh, as, as Garrett alluded to. Uh, but this beer we have here is, is the, uh, kind of even more unique. Um, so a little background on the beer. Uh, we started in 2007 a project that was init- initially kind of an experiment, uh, basically to see if we could produce spontaneously fermented beers uh, in Portland, Maine. Uh, and spontaneously fer- spontaneous fermentation is a little bit of a kind of a silly word because there's really no such thing, but natural fermentation is probably a better word. Uh, but it's, uh, for those of you who are familiar with Belgian Lambic, it's how those beers are produced. So instead of uh, mechanically cooling uh, your wort after the boil kettle, you know, where most breweries, and us for 99% of our beers, run through some kind of a heat exchanger that takes the the wort from boiling temperature down to a temperature that yeast can live in, uh, instead of doing that, we use kind of a fairly ancient technique of cooling wort and use, with the use of a cool ship. So the wort comes out of the brew house and goes into a very shallow vessel. Uh, it's um, in our case about 18 inches deep. Looks like a, we call it a big brownie pan. Uh, and, and it cools in that vessel in a room that has open windows. So we only do it at very specific times of year. As one, based on uh, experience of Belgian brewers, and two, based on our own experience. Typically, that's basically in the fall between um, late October, November, part of December. The wort will cool in that cool vessel, cooling vessel, and during that time frame, uh, natural uh, wild yeast, Brettanomyces, and lactic acid bacteria will inoculate this wort. And the reason for the shallow vessel is more contact area. Um, in truth, we could talk all night about... When cool ships came about, they didn't—they weren't really created to make lambic beer or cool ship beer. They were simply created to cool wort. You know, many, many, many years ago, uh, brewers realized that. You know, you guys have probably heard the stories about supposedly uh, people putting um, bread with water out in the open air, and it gets inoculated, and that's how beer was created, so on and so forth. Well, at some point in time, before people even knew what yeast was, um, they realized I can put this liquid out and if I cool it faster, uh, I can create this delicious alcoholic beverage. And so, for many, many years breweries used kind of what we would call today fairly crude methods for cooling the liquid. Uh, and Cool Ship was one of them. Well, once the implementation of, uh, you know, mechanical cooling if you will or more modern cooling methods came about, closed cooling, uh, isolated yeast strains and so on. Almost all breweries got rid of their cool ships and went with more convent- more modern methods. Uh, a handful of breweries in, in Belgium. Uh, there's still some breweries in, in other countries like Germany that are still using cool ships. And so we, we kind of thought it would be an interesting experiment to see if you could you know, create spontaneous fermentation, which you know, if, if, if the conventional you know, beer geek uh, knowledge before was that those beers could only be made uh, within you know, a handful of miles of Brussels around the Seine Valley in Brussels. And so we we decided to give it a try. And uh, in 2007 was the first time we brewed it and it took several years to come up with uh, our first blend. Um, And I think the first time we released was around 2011. Um, So this beer you have in front of you is what you would say 100% spontaneously fermented or naturally fermented. Um, It's aged in barrels for uh, a range of one to three years. Um, That's how long the fermentation and aging process takes for this particular beer. And um, this particular beer is, you know, for lack of a better way to describe it, it's kind of our version of a, of a goose, of a Belgian goose. So it's, it's a blend of one, roughly one, two, and three-year-old spontaneously fermented beer. Uh, We also do uh, Cool Ship Red and Cool Ship, uh, which we actually have down on the floor tonight, Cool Ship Red, which is with raspberries. So it's uh, same base beer with raspberries added, uh, and we do cool ship cerise with uh, cherries as well. So
4: now, do you do you add uh, do you add um, sugar and uh, and an actual refermentation yeast? yeast? What's your final processing into refermentation?
5: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I meant to say that earlier, but I got a little babbling away here. But uh, yeah, that's a very good question because this, as far as bottle conditioning goes, this is kind of a hybrid. Um, you know. <sighs> the really true traditional way, I suppose, to make these beers, although I don't think many lambic breweries, breweries actually still do it, uh, is to use your young, young lambic or young spontaneous beer as your priming uh, sugar. So, you know, we've talked about and most of the beers that we do at the brewery and, and most bottle conditioning here in the U.S., you're adding a prescribed around of, of sugar of some kind. Uh, in the case of because the fermentation so long in these beers there's a little bit of residual sugar still around after about one year in a barrel even at two years and once you get to three years it's basically completely dry so the traditional way to bottle condition these beers is to add enough of the young lambic or cool ship in our case that there's residual sugar there and that's what the the yeast will feed off of to create the carbonation in the bottle we do kind of a hybrid because Frankly, it's difficult to hit that exact point where um, you have enough residual sugar in the beer to create the exact carbonation that you want. So we, you know, in this case, this beer is probably 50%, maybe 40% of the sugar needed for refermentation is from sugar that we add, and the rest is from residual sugar in the beer. Um, I tried initially in the early stages of this project to do it solely with uh, residual sugar from, from the young beer, and it was just too much inconsistency in the final beer. And so, and I, I didn't want to be tied to choosing the right, because a big part of this is blending the right beer, and I didn't want to be tied to only a residual sugar in determining the final blend. Whereas if all I was worried about was, am I, do I have enough sugar to create carbonation in here, then all of a sudden I can't pick maybe the best barrels for the blend, if you, if, you, if you know what I'm getting at. So this is kind of a mix of both. And as far as yeast goes, there's nothing, no yeast added in this particular beer. We go with only the spontaneous natural yeast that's it, still in solution, which is mostly healthy in the younger beer. And we felt strongly about that for this beer because this beer is very much a, a local Portland, Maine beer. And so to add a cultured yeast to it just felt a little bit wrong. So we relied on that alone. Uh, yeah, so he was wondering if we did analysis on it. And, and yeah, I could, once again, I could talk about that for a long time. But we were fortunate. Uh, <coughs> we have a pretty extensive lab at the brewery, but not uh, to, the, to, the, uh, to the level that can actually type what kind of microbes are in there we can certainly say ah, you know that's a that's a lactic acid bacteria say um, but even to that level it's it's not uh... not as not super sophisticated but we were lucky enough to have a uc davis grad student contact us kind of out of the blue who had heard about our project and so he did his master's thesis on our beers so we actually have some very solid data on what's in there um, it's it's available it's online I forget what it's called um it's it's a it's a great study we're we're listed in the study as an american uh cool ship brewery or something like that, so our name's not actually listed but <laughs> that's us
2: yeah yeah no that's
5: First of all, I should say, we try not to, we don't call it lambic just out of respect for that tradition. That's why we call it cool ship and, um, but, uh, but there is Saccharomyces in there. Wild Saccharomyces, to reference that study, does the bulk of the work in this beer, does most of the heavy lifting of consumption of sugars. That happens very early in the first two weeks, three weeks of time, um, so, yeah, but it's wild Saccharomyces. It's not, it's not a cultured strain. And then uh, lactic acid bacteria comes on to add acidity, and then Protanomyces finishes the job. That's, in a nutshell, what happens.
4: Does this have any residual sugar at all?
5: No, very, very little. I mean, it's uh, half a degree Play-Doh, something like that. Yeah, right. This beer right here has no residual sugar, but the young beer we add will vary from, I don't know, three, four degrees Play Doh. And that kind of helps with the carbonation.
4: Uh, actually, you know, uh, the question was uh, whether the beer that we served had a lower carbonation. I think I might not have explained it correctly. Uh, what I was actually talking about was the uh, was the foam. That uh, there was not much foam standing up on the beer. The beer is actually quite highly carbonated, which is one reason why uh, uh, I was kind of looking over there to see how how quickly they were popping the bottles. You know, because uh, you know, if opened quietly, it's still fine. But if it uh, if you just suddenly popped it, uh, you'd get a bit of a, 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 bit of a gusher. Um, so, you know, as was alluded to by uh, the last couple of people speaking, Britannomyces will eventually work its way down through, through dextrins and other things uh, to the extent, and especially if you have an even more complex fermentation like Jason's, uh, you can eventually expect that, uh, that it will go you know, all the way down, it will go to zero. And so what this means is that when you put a beer into the bottle for refermentation, if you're going to have wild yeast in the bottle, you really have to be, uh, uh, generally speaking, pretty well and safely under 2 degrees Plato. Um, because it may take time, it may take years, um, but it will go all the way out. So, whereas Local 1 would go into the bottle with, uh, with 13, 13 to 14 grams uh, depending on you know, our our lab tests, 13 to 14 grams of uh, of priming sugar per liter. Um, This went to the bottle with about seven, you know, because we knew that local one would stop at one and a half, um, but that this eventually wouldn't stop at all, and that other one and a half would then be taken up and translated into extra carbonation in the bottle, which took years to happen, but it did happen. And some uh, brewers have found out rather unhappily uh, um, you know that's something that they wanted to be uh, uh, very zestily carbonated in the short term and they did get that, what they also got you know, with the Brett in the bottle is eventually the uptake of that uh, rest of that residual sugar resulting in a grenade uh, and uh, hopefully nobody hurt but, uh, but a lot of people's feelings uh, certainly uh, you know, when they uh, thought that they had a nice beer in the back of their closet and in fact it ruined half their clothes uh, you know, they are, uh, it's kind of a double whammy, you know. That the the of one, uh, of in, uh, in volumes, it'd be about four uh, and, you know, or eight grams. You know, they're, that'd be a pretty close approximation. Um, uh, wild one would be closer to nine. Uh, in the bottle, you know, I know talking to Jean-Marie Roch, you know, uh, uh, who until recently was the head brewer of Oroval. You know, he said that uh, basically when it went to the market, Orval had eight and eventually in the market it would go to ten. You know, meaning five volumes, uh, which is almost twice what, say, Brooklyn Lager has. Um, and that would be the result of that Brett eating down in that beer the rest of the residual sugar and, and giving you that carbonation. So, you know, you do have a, a, a trade-off there that in the short term, uh, if you're going to prime beer, you know, for a bottle conditioning, you have to prime for the future, not for right now and, uh, you know, planning to put your beer out on the market. When we did our beer um, that we eventually released as Wild Shriek, and this was planned from the outset, it was in the bottle for a full year uh, before it was released. One thing I'll add to that, too, is it,
5: it, every bottle is different. So, the 12-ounce bottles that we use for the majority of our beers, the, the spec from the supplier is three volumes or six grams per liter. Um, this bottle here, which is... I was just going to call it a champagne bottle, but it's not. It's a beer bottle that champagne people use... Um, you can call it a split. <laughs> there we go, a split. Is more like 10-plus. So, you know, for homebrewers or brewers or whatever, Make sure you know what your bottle holds before you make plans on what to put in it. You know, over the years, you know, we in the U.S. do not uh, recycle bottles or uh, reuse bottles as they do in Europe. So over the years, the glass has gotten thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner. If you were to break this bottle and look, it's, I don't know, five times thicker probably than a standard 12-ounce bottle.
4: Yeah, yeah, you do... (laughs) You need to be very careful about these things. Uh, you also start learning a lot more about, uh, you know, about glass than you ever wanted to know. You know, little, you know obscure terms like cullets, uh, which you don't want to hear if you're, uh, if you're in there. Um, you know, basically, glass defects and things like that. Um, so for those who are interested, what you do is you... Because each fermentation is very slightly different, even when things are quite consistent, what you'll do is what's called a lab rapid, where you add your refermentation yeast... Uh, to the finished beer, and you put a lot of it, you know, in an Erlenmeyer flask and you have a stirrer, you know, going for say 48 hours, and then you look at your gravity, and you basically, what you're looking to do is assess where will that go eventually? Um, And it will drive it down a little bit further. Um, But even though we do that test, there are two reasons why in some ways it doesn't work. Uh, Well, for bread, it doesn't work at all. You got to assume zero in the future. And then for the second thing, fermentation and refermentation have a bit of a, I would just call it momentum that uh, uh, that doesn't really occur even in uh, in that test. So over time, so many batches, you know, a couple of batches a week for for this many years, we've kind of figured out sort of what the you know what the drive is, what the curve is, and you can kind of look at a batch of beer and know where it's going to end up, you know. But you know, you want to be pretty sure. I mean, in real life, the difference between uh, 8 and 8.5 and vo- uh, uh, grams of CO2 uh, uh, per liter is not going to make a big difference to the consumer, and your glass is going to be safe. You don't have a problem. But when you start pushing up over, over 10, now you're looking at gushing. When the, uh, when the person opens the bottle, you know, they may not be able to get into the glass fast enough. And then beyond that, of course, you, have, uh, you, know, you, you, you could have a dangerous situation especially if your bottle isn't of great quality. They import air from Belgium.
5: That's <laughs> true. It's, it's actually another really expensive. It comes in cans. You have to open them. Um, We really couldn't do it without the Belgians, Stephen. Um, so yeah, I mean it's an interesting process. I mean it's especially for for us and me as normally like you know a very kind of uh, anal controlling technical brewer. It's it's kind of a it's a very it's kind of a mind shift. Um, and, and so we, but I will say the one thing, and we're still learning honestly. I mean we're we probably. So we've been doing it since 2007. We've done 23 or so batches, and I bet we've sold half of it, probably. Just, you know, some beers we just dump because it just doesn't... That's just kind of part of making these beers. But what we've found is temperature and time of year is very important component for, for us, and this is probably specific to Portland, Maine. Who knows? Um, so uh, our, our, our temperature window... has has narrowed a ton. So, initially, you know, if we're talking about overnight temperature alone, um, we probably, if it got in the high 40s, we would do it. Now, it's like 25 to 35 in overnight. We won't won't do it any warmer than that. And we've just found that, you know, it's, what's present in those temperatures above, below, we're kind of worried if it's going to be a block of ice when we come in in the morning, but above that, it's, uh, you know, we get a lot of ethyl acetate, solventy, heavy, just unpleasant flavors, so, but that's Portland. I mean, who knows what other folks
4: do, so, yeah, it's, it's an interesting process. It's interesting to see, you know, if you look around some really old British breweries, how many old British breweries have cool ships up in the, uh, you know, uh, they would usually be up in the attic, you know, so the work would be pumped up. Um you know uh, uh I remember you know the old Youngs brewery in London has a cool ship up at the peak of the building, and uh you know it kind of makes you think about what what that beer was was really like. I mean, yeah, they pitched it, but <laughs> well a good example of that one of my favorite Belgian breweries, small
5: brewery called the dola, uh, has a cool ship, and they still use it in every beer and If you have their beer at the brewery and at you know any of their beers. They have this great fresh yeast character. They're, they're wonderful, delicious, like hoppy beers. But a lot of times if you get them, in st- they're still very good beers in the U.S., but a lot of times by the time they get here, they've been in a bottle for a year or more, and the sourness comes on late. And they're still very, like, you know, they're great beers. Uh, or beer, you know, they're a darker beer. You have it at the brewery. It's like a nice super malty beer over here, year plus. So, so that's more of, I guess... More of a traditional way to use a cool ship would be simply to cool the work, then they pitch yeast, but those same microbes are there and they come through later. When the cool ships were used by English brewers, German brewers, or whatever years and years ago, uh, the beer was consumed locally quickly, so the beers didn't get sour.
1: When you guys came in, I think Brian mentioned that you chose well because we had beer in this room. And I I don't know if they ever got beer in that room over there. But um, the disadvantage of this room is that here in just a very few moments, all of those people who are probably dying to get a beer because they haven't been in here are going to come pouring out through that door heading out for the Sabre floor. So we probably need to uh, wrap things up here. Have they earned their right to leave? (laughs) <laughs> well, I don't know. I think uh, have, have, have we the um, brewing is often described as a combination of art and science, and I think there are very few things that exemplify the combination of art and science that goes into brewing as much as bottle conditioning. And I think all of these uh, four gentlemen tonight and the fabulous beers that we have shared um, really exemplify the highest point of art and science that goes into this. So I'd invite you to uh, join me in thanking them. I suspect they may be around to answer a couple (laughs) questions later.
0: Thank you for listening to this recording from Saver 2014, brought to you by the Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio. You can find the rest of the salons from Saver 2014, as well as all of the salons from previous years of Saver, at craftbeerradio.com saver, or on craftbeer.com. Craft Beer Radio is a weekly beer podcast that you can listen to on iTunes or from our website at craftbeerradio.com.